Tonight we're going to continue a series called The Remnant, which is kind of that term is about looking at the righteous people of God, those who stood firm in the midst of challenges and crises in their day and age in the Old Testament. Uh, we've uh, looked at Abraham a couple of weeks ago. Oh, no, that was, was that last Sunday? <laughs> uh, I think it was last Sunday. Yeah, it was. Um, at dinner church, and uh, yeah, tonight we're looking at Elijah, and this remnant is about the people who stood that in the midst of uh, kind of things that went on in their world as the righteous people, and and so we are in the midst of kind of a crisis moment in our world. We are called to actually stand as the righteous people of God. In the midst of challenge, our call is actually to stand up and go, who are we going to be? What's our voice going to be? How are we going to respond in the midst of kind of this circumstance? And uh, there's so much that we can learn from the people in the Bible. And so we're going to learn about that. But we're also going to talk about uh, the sense of being overwhelmed. Because I don't know about you, but I, at times, these last, particularly even just the last couple of weeks, have felt pretty overwhelmed by challenges in life, by trying to uh, live up to my own expectations, by trying to, you know, be righteous, even that sense of trying to be the best person that I can be, can at times be overwhelming. When we're, when we're striving for the best of ourselves, when we're striving to, to live our best careers, where to live as a best parent or, or friend, uh, when we're striving to actually be a great Christian, that can be overwhelming at times. That doesn't just mean that it's just going to be easy and breezy. If we're actually striving, then it usually means it's going to be difficult. It's going to be tough because there is a battle that needs to take place in order for us to actually succeed in life. Things are going to be difficult and life can be overwhelming. And it's felt like that for, for Michaela and I, most certainly. Uh, even this week, there was one, of the, one day and I was just... I felt so heavy and like there was a weight upon me, upon different situations and just thoughts that are going through my mind. This, this has happens to all of us, guys. It's so important for us to recognize that life can be overwhelming. And so we're going to have a look at how life can be overwhelming and what our response is going to be. And so I'm writing on the board, guys, overwhelming. Overwhelming. <laughs> uh, how life can be overwhelming and how we're called to live in the midst of the challenges of life. And so we're going to turn to our Bibles. We're going to read from First Kings. We're going to read the story of Elijah and how um, he calls, uh, how, yeah, he responds in a difficult crisis moment in life. Uh, and we're going to read from verse, uh, sorry, chapter 19. Um, and in this time, in this setting that we, we find ourselves in chapter 19, just previous to this moment, Elijah had his biggest moment. He was, he was one of the most important prophets of the Old Testament, uh, has such a key importance uh, to play in the Old Testament. But he has his biggest moment, his moment on Mount Carmel, the moment that a lot of people know about Elijah, this moment where uh, Israel had turned from worshipping God and that actually started worshipping uh, Baal, the, the foreign god. And in this time, uh, Elijah comes back and the, the, uh, Israel had a, a corrupt king called Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Uh, they were bad people. They were worshipping Baal and they had uh, killed off 
the Lord's prophets. And yet Elijah comes into town is like, no, this is not going to happen anymore. And he stands up and says, all right, let's do a test. You uh, Baal prophets and me, there's 400 Baal prophets but, and me alone, we're going to do this test on Mount Carmel and we're going to have these two altars set up. Uh, and the one God that actually sets fire from heaven onto the altar, that is the one true God. And we see, in, as many people know the story, that nothing happened to the Baal prophet's uh, sacrifice. But yet, as Elijah prays, fire from heaven lights the altar, the sacrifice that was there, and uh, the people turn to God. This big fire moment happens for Elijah. Uh, and out of that story, Jezebel, the uh, Ahab, the king's wife, goes, no, that's not okay. I'm going to try and kill the prophet Elijah. He, she was not happy with Elijah. And so, rightly so, she's like, I'm going to kill Elijah. And Elijah is scared. He's freaked out. Even though he has this massive moment of God doing this incredible thing, this woman's out to kill him. And he freaks out. And so we're going to read what happens as a result of uh, him finding out that Jezebel is trying to kill him. It says from verse 3, it says, Then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. He looked, and there, there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of, the f of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, the original mountain that Moses went up. Uh, he went to Horeb, the mount of God. At that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. And then the word of the Lord came to him saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He, he answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they are seeking my life to take it away. He said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? See, life can be overwhelming at times. Life can seem pretty difficult. For Elijah, he had this big, amazing moment where God had been there for him in Mount Carmel in these sacrifice moments. 
But yet, this woman is after his life, and he's freaked out. It talks about him being in this depressive state. He, he wants God to kill him. This is too overwhelming, too much, too much for him to bear in this moment. So how can I deal with this, God? And life can sometimes be overwhelming. And so we're going to have a look at a Hebrew word called katar. This is a Hebrew word, okay? Now before I actually explain what this word is, I'm going to just do a pop quiz. We're all going to guess what we think the word is, okay? Uh, and so we're going to give you four options. And I'm going to give you A, B, C, and D. You have to guess, all right? Does anyone actually know what Qatar means? Do people know? All right, so all right. you can't look at everybody else. You have to just think through. Is it either A, does it mean hope? B, does it mean sin? C, does it mean freedom? Or D, does it mean cats? Um, Qatar? <laughs> just something. So what, is, what do you think? A, B, C, or D? A, hope, B, sin, C, freedom, D, cats. Put your, answer up. Put your answers up in the air. Uh -huh. We're just getting interactive. We're just inv involving you guys. What do you think? Uh, if you said B, sin, that would be correct. It is sin, guys. We're talking about sin. Oh, that dirty little sin. Exactly what you want to talk about when you're at church, right, guys? exactly what you want to talk about. Uh, life can be overwhelming, and, uh, but sin just has this gross thing that kind of impacts our life and impacts who we are. And um, better than I can explain it, I thought I'd show a Bible Project video unpacking the word Qatar for us. So um, let's look to the screen and look at these guys explain it much better than me. Most people assume the Bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are, and that's true. It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate. Because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Iniquity describes behavior that's crooked, while transgression refers to breaking trust. And sin? This is actually the most common of these bad words in the Bible. So let's focus on it for a few minutes. Sin translates the Hebrew word chata and the Greek word hamartia. The most basic meaning of sin isn't religious at all. Chata simply means to fail or miss the goal. Like when the Israelite tribe of Benjamin trained a small army of slingshot experts, they could sling a stone at a hare and not chata, that is, fail or miss. Or there's a biblical proverb that warns against making hasty decisions because you're likely to chata your way, miss your destination. So in the Bible, sin is a failure to fulfill a goal. But what's the goal? Well, on page one of the Bible, we learn that every human is an image of God, a sacred being who represents the Creator and is worthy of respect. And so in this way of seeing the world, sin is a failure to love God and others by not treating them with the honor they deserve. You can see this idea in the famous code of conduct given to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments. Half of them identify ways you can fail at loving God, and the other half name ways you can fail at loving people. 
And the fact that both kinds of failure are combined shows that failing to honor God is deeply connected to failing to honor people. This is why in the Bible, sin against people is sin against God. Like when Joseph refuses to sleep with the wife of Potiphar, he says, how could I sin against God? In Joseph's mind, failing to honor a human made in God's image is a failure to love God. And so, sin is a failure to be truly human. But there's more. A fascinating thing about sin in the Bible is that most of the time that people are failing, they either don't know it, or even worse, they think they're succeeding. Like when Pharaoh wants to build Egypt's economy and protect national security, in his mind, this justifies enslaving the Israelites. He thinks it's good, and he's totally unaware that it's an epic fail. Or when King Saul is chasing David around the wilderness trying to kill him, he thought he was bringing a criminal to justice until he realizes he's the corrupt one. And he says, I have sinned. I am the failure. So sin is about more than just doing bad things. It describes how we easily deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. So why are humans such bad judges between moral failure and success? Well, the first appearance of the word sin in the Bible offers an insight. There are these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Their parents had just given in to this beastly temptation to redefine good and evil by their own wisdom, and now Cain is faced with a similar choice. He's jealous and angry that God has favored his brother, and so God warns him, if you don't choose what is good, chata is crouching at the door, it wants you but you can rule over it. So in these stories, sin or moral failure is depicted as this wild, hungry animal that wants to consume humans. And we know how that story ends. The Bible is trying to tell us that failed human behavior, our tendency towards self-deception, it runs deep. It's rooted in our desires and selfish urges that compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. And it leads to this chain reaction of relational breakdown. This is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes hamartia as a power or a force that rules humans. In his words, we are slaves to sin. He even says sin lives in us so that the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. So with the word sin, the biblical authors are offering a robust description of the human condition. It's a failure to be humans who fully love God and others. It's our inability to judge whether we're succeeding or failing. And it's that deep, selfish impulse that drives much of our behavior. This is not a pretty picture of ourselves, but if we're honest, it's realistic. This is why in the Bible, the story of Jesus is such good news. He's depicted as the creator become a truly human one who did not fail to love God and others. That is, he did not sin. And yet, he took responsibility for humanity's history of failure. He lived for others and he died for their sins. And he was raised from the dead to offer them the gift of his life that covers for their failures. Or in the words of the apostles, he committed no sin, yet he carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to our sins and live to do what is right. And that's the story behind the biblical word for sin. Nice. Beautiful. So this picture of sin is this, this image of when we fail, when we don't get it right, when we are disobedient to God, when we fail God and we fail people. This is what happens when we sin. And uh, I love that picture that they, they share of this beast. 
because sometimes that's what it feels like when we don't quite get it right. We feel like there's this something that just crouching at the door, ready to pounce on us. That often in life we don't get things right. Our call is not to be perfect and to feel like we're with, with no sin, but it's, it's the fact of realizing that this is a part of who we are. And there is evil desires around. There's this, this spirit that is at work trying to pull us away from how we treat God and how we treat others. This is so key and important for us to recognize that this is real. We can't live in this world thinking, oh, we're, we're just immune to sin. We're just perfect people. That's what, that's what I should be aiming for. That's not our aim. It's not just to be immune to sin and be immune to the, the pull, but actually recognize that this is a reality. This is what is, being, is happening, that there is, in a sense, and excuse my drawing, but there is this monster of sin, this animal crouching at the... T- <laughs> I don't know what that is. <laughs> That's beautiful. Uh, crouching, overwhelming us. And this is, for me, this is what it almost feels like when we're overwhelmed. Like, how, what, how can I do this? How can I keep moving on? This is too difficult for me to handle. This is too overwhelming for me to actually embrace and, and move forward. This is how it can feel like at times. Like there is this, this animal crouching, just ready to pounce on me. This feels too much. And so we need to recognize the power of the animal that is at work, that sin is at work in our lives, and that we are called to be transformed. We are called in the midst of it to see God moving, to see God changing us. And we see this in Elijah. He, he has these moments where he has failed. It feels like he's failed. That this Jezebel's after his life and he, he, he goes into this moment and like, just kill me. I, I just can't handle this. This is a failure to, to myself. I just, I don't know what to do. It feels too overwhelming. And even in his response to God on the mountain, when he's like, Elijah, what are you doing here? His response is this self-righteous, look at what all, I, all that I've done for you, God, and now, come, like, what are you doing for me? This is too overwhelming. Look at all these things that I've done for you, but yet I'm so overwhelmed. Sometimes we can approach God like this, feeling like, God, I've given you so much, but yet I'm, I'm struggling. I've been going through a lot. This is difficult and hard. Why aren't you there for me? Where are you in the big moment? There was this fire moment, this big, amazing moment, this important thing, but yet God wants to teach us and show us that it's not in those big moments. Sometimes we think we need these big moments, but it's just in the still, small, quiet, intimate moments that a God actually wants to transform our lives. It's in the intimate, still, quiet moments that he wants to transform us. And so this is where, this is what we need, a transformed heart. Transformed, transformed heart. This is, the, this is in, the, in the midst of the overwhelming, in the midst of us dealing with the, the beast of sin, dealing with the beast of failure, feeling like we can't get it right. 
What we continually need is a transformed heart. What we continually need is God to actually move in us to change who we are. And the Bible talks about this so much that what we actually need is a new heart. Well, we we can't deal with this on our own. We can't just try and figure it out and be self-righteous and be better than the sin that we are doing. But we actually need to change and transform who we are and let God do that in us, a work in us to transform us. And so we need to recognize that this is going on and this is what we need. Because so too often we just deal with the sin and go, oh, I'm not good enough. I don't know if I can do this. And then this overwhelming sense just is like, it just lingers in our life. But we need to recognize daily, this is like a continual, guys, that we need a transformed heart. We need to let God change our lives. And the beautiful prayer of the Israelite people, a prayer that um, there's going to be a, a, form, a new weekly formation plan sent uh, to your emails this week. Uh, so tonight that will be sent. Uh, just a daily plan that you can kind of look at and think about this heart. And uh, daily I want us to read the Shema, the ancient Israel prayer, the prayer calling out to God. And it'd be, it'd be amazing to, to actually just pray this prayer twice a day, just like the Israelite people did uh, in their day in the morning and in the evening. They would pray this prayer, a prayer committing to God. And the prayer goes like, like this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The simple prayer of me, of us committing daily, every day, twice, going, God, I will love you with all my soul, with all my heart, and all my might. And uh, in the, the plan that I'm going to send you, every day there's a key word that uh, the Bible Project have, that, that kind of thing, that thing we just watched. They have it on the words of that prayer. And uh, it's just a little cool thing to actually just explore some of these words, explore what's going on in this prayer, and actually let God teach us and train us into transforming our heart. But this sense that we shall love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our hearts. Now, our heart in the Old Testament was not a just a kind of a physical thing. It was a physical thing that people were explaining, but... Uh, they had no concept of uh, a mind in uh, those days. They didn't actually understand that the mind was a thing. And so the uh, mind and our thoughts all came from our heart. And so our heart was important for our thoughts. (laughs) Yeah, good. Our thoughts started, originated from our heart, which then led to... uh, our feelings. So often when we think about like heart, we think about our feelings. And, um, you know, you put your heart into it. It's just that thing of you, you've got to put your effort and your feeling. You just, your gut, you got to put it all in. Who you are, your, your heart into it. And so, but thoughts and feelings are so connected. When you think about something, then you often actually have a feeling about that thing. Even if it's positive, negative, or neutral, we often have this feeling attached to when I think about Dave Watkins. It's this positive feeling, this thing that I appreciate him. You, you think about these things when you, you feel things when you think about them. It's kind of connected. Makes sense. And then uh, it moves on to our choices. When we think about them, we have a certain feeling about it, but then it dictates how we 
choose to live. So this is what the heart does. This is the, the power of the heart working in our lives. It's this thing that it's our thoughts coming into our brain, and then we actually have a feeling about it, and it actually determines whether we will respond to that feeling in a positive way, we'll actually overcome that feeling, or whether we'll give in to the feeling and our choices are, come out of that place of our heart. So it's interconnected with who we are, the, the people that we are, our choices that we make happens and is determined by the center of our life in our hearts. And so it is important to recognize that it, we need help in this. <laughs> we need help with our thoughts we need help with our feelings. We need help with our choices. I don't get it right, and I certainly all of us don't get it right. We all need help with God actually doing something in us and submitting those things, submitting our thoughts, our feelings, our choices with God and letting Him change us, letting Him transform us, and recognizing firstly that there is deceit. There is this overwhelming failure thing that is actually affecting our heart and coming at us and impacting our thoughts and feelings and choices and will we let this overwhelming thing actually dictate who we are or will we choose to actually live in a place of responding to the voice of God will we choose to let this dictate who we are I don't want to be a person who lets this dictate who I am, but I actually want to choose another way of letting God transform me and living in a new kind of way, in a new way that lets God form us into the very people he wants us to be, that isn't just responding to just, God, I need you to change me by this big earthquake moment. And sometimes we think that. Sometimes you think the only way I'm going to get this transformed heart is in this big moment where God just booms something. This amazing, oh, I need to hear this amazing big thing. But here we see it's just a still, small voice. Now, recently I actually was uh, in my first earthquake. Has anyone been in an earthquake before? Yeah, a few people. Uh, it was very mild. It was in Bali uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and it was around the time that, like, you know, earthquakes, those are the bad ones that were happening, um, some serious earthquakes, and uh, we were on a missions trip, and we were in this room in the dorm, and um, it was early in the morning, and uh, this earth, like, it started shaking, and uh, the, we were in bunk beds at, uh, in this room, and the, the person above me in the bunk bed just... Ran, like jumped out and started running out of the room. Like they, they, they kind of freaked out. They, it, they would have been asleep and they would have felt it and they just kind of responded quickly and kind of ran out. Uh, I was just like kind of took it and like it didn't last too long. It was pretty mild. Uh, but it's funny that this, it was kind of funny that this person, I don't actually remember who it was, but it was just, they reacted like in this, I'm going to freak out. There's this earthquake happening uh, in, in our room. Um, and yeah, it's kind of the earthquakes are pretty powerful. They actually they shake the earth. <laughs> they are and obviously very dangerous and um, are not great things at times. Uh, but some yeah, sometimes we think for us to actually move, for actually us actually to act, we think God needs to come in an earthquake. For us to actually do something about and transform our hearts, we need to have this clear, audible voice. God needs to actually do something in our, in our lives. Sometimes we just go along with emotions and go ahead just doing our life and we kind of just settle in and think, oh, I'm just going to settle in and just I, I've kind of, this is who I am, this is what I do, 
and we don't actually let God in truly into our hearts. We think the only way for him to move is if he really shakes things up, really does and really speaks in this clear voice. That's, that's how I know God's going to actually do something in our lives. But this story shows us that God often does not come in the powerful wind, in the earthquake, in the fire, but he comes in the still, small, intimate voice, in the intimate moments of life. See, our hearts are truly mended in the intimacy of the one who transforms us. Our hearts are truly mended, truly transformed in the intimacy of the one who transforms us. See, just as we have this overwhelming sense, there needs to be an intimacy. Intimacy. (laughs) Yep. I haven't thought about the fact that when you're writing, you have to think about what you're writing, and then you're speaking. It's just, guys, so much to go through. (laughs) Uh, There's an intimacy that needs to take place, and it's so priority, so important for us to actually realize that this overwhelming thing cannot take us out. We need a transformed heart, and the way to do that is an intimacy with the one who can transform us. And, and I'm using this word intimacy intentionally because uh, it, it has this deep kind of you're intimate. It's often, you know, used with a... a, a uh, with your partner, there's this intimate thing that you have with your partner, this, this sense that it's intertwined, there's this deep intimacy with our God, and it needs to transform us. When we actually grow that intimacy, when we actually take time to think about how am I connecting with God, how am I letting Him change me, how is this intimacy, how is this relationship actually growing and nurturing, this is so key for us to continue to transform our hearts so that overwhelming situations will not have the say in our lives. This is so important for us to dig into and let God do a work in us. And, and this th- thought of intimacy, it starts in realizing that we are loved. It starts at realizing that we are loved, just as we are, as we sang it. You love me as you find me. This is so key to the, the, the starting point of this intimacy, is realizing that we are loved as we are. And we see that in uh, Elijah's life. He goes and flees from Jezebel. He's in the desert, in the wilderness, and uh, he's like, woe is me, take my life from me. And he, he goes to sleep, and God provides for him. He provides food and water and sleep. Essentials. He knows what we need. He knows the food is important to our lives, and he is there for him. It's, it may feel like that he that God has abandoned him, but in the midst of the wilderness, God was there for Elijah, providing for him, providing what he needed. And then, even on that uh, on that mountain, when uh, when Elijah stood up and said this self-righteous talk, this, this sense that I've got myself here, I've, how good am I? God was still there. He's like, I still want to just be intimate with you. I want to be with you in this still, small voice. Will you stop just trying to rely on how good you've got it? 
Will you stop trying to rely on how perfect you've made your life? Will you stop trying to rely on just ticking all the boxes and just accept the fact that I love you as you are? I love you as you are. Will you just embrace the fact that you are loved? And that can be difficult. That can be difficult because we talk to ourselves in our head (laughs) and uh, can contradict the voice of God saying that you are loved. And by far, whenever I, the most thing that God says to me, whenever I come to him in prayer, by far the most thing he always says to me is, I love you. It's just always there. It's kind of, I'm I'm always expecting something different. And he always just says, I love you. I get that that thought come into my head. I get that thing that come into this defining thing that's always just, I love you. And I can rest in that. I can be who I am because of that place that he loves me. And he's there for me. The intimacy starts in recognizing that we are loved by him. And that's so it is even more apparent in how Jesus gave his life. He recognized that we can't do this, that sin has overwhelmed us, that we can't figure it out on our own. The only solution that we have is Jesus. The only solution that we have is God coming down here to earth and making a way for us. And so that's why he has come to show us that we are loved. But then secondly... This intimacy is first recognizing that we are loved. And then uh, secondly, that we need to, to embrace God. We need to embrace who God is. <laughs> yep. <laughs> We're embracing God in the overwhelming moments. When life feels like we can't do it, where there's this animal creaching kind of, ready to pounce at the door where we realize we need to be transformed we need to actually embrace god in the midst of the failure we need to embrace god in the midst of it feeling overwhelming don't run from him don't feel like you need to hide from him but in the midst of this situation we actually need to run to him and embrace him in the midst of this crisis moment don't feel like you need to get away and go i can't deal with this i can't be close to him no god calls us to embrace him in the midst of what is going on in the midst of feeling like we can't do this god calls us to embrace him calls us to come near to him to go god i need you i can't do this without you i can't figure this out on my own i need to embrace you so key for us this and there's this amazing quote uh, mark sayers a great uh, pastor in melbourne uh, had a conversation with another pastor called terry walling uh, from the states and he's like a, a pastor coach Uh, kind of guy, and he said this amazing quote, uh, kind of talking about this moment. It was only um, a couple of months ago, he was talking about this crisis crisis moment that we're in. And he said this, he says, one of the general characteristics of a time of transition is the fact that we can't go back, but we don't know how to go forward. And it creates this time of uncertainty, even a time of isolation. We often don't like these moments and we want to get out of them as quickly as we can. 
But the reality is that if we look back on many, many years of how God shapes leaders, even biblically and historically, we want out of transitions, but God wants in. One of the things that is good about transition is the ability to have him refine us and take us to a new place, deeper into our dependence on him. And what that typically yields is a greater ability to minister for him. The very thing we resist sometimes is the very thing he is trying to do to align us with him and grant us more of his presence. Because personal renewal leads to corporate change. Instead of resisting it, move towards it. Incredible. Instead of resisting it, move towards it. And so in this embracing of God, God wants in. He wants in on the struggle. He wants in on our failure. He wants in on our, I can't do this. God wants in. He wants all in on our lives. But our ability to actually embrace him and and be a part of letting intimacy take place in our life, it needs to happen in the overwhelming moments. Just in the everyday mundane moments isn't enough. It needs to actually, we need to come in the midst of these moments that we feel like we've failed. We feel like the beast has kind of taken over us. We need to let God in and let him embrace. Embrace him for who he is and let intimacy change our perspective and change our lives. Let that intimacy truly transform our hearts as we embrace him for all that he has. And it's so clear for me in, in our marriage with my marriage with in our marriage <laughs> in my marriage uh, with Michaela uh, the the, key, the two key things that for me that have uh, stood apart the two th- things that have really helped um, our relationship for me is number one is communication we all, we all know this the communication is so key that. Uh, I don't, and Michaela doesn't expect of us, of ourselves, that we're going to be perfect, that we're going to get everything right, that we're going to just be amazing human beings. No, we're going to get things wrong. We're going to miss out on uh, you know, sharing what we truly need. But what we, I continue to come back on is I need to communicate it. I need to share my heart. I'm not going to be perfect, but we're going to share. We're actually going to open up and talk about it, that the communication is so key and important for our marriage to continue to work through um, developing that intimacy together. And then secondly is uh, learning how to submit what I want, learning how to submit what my agenda is and actually trying to hear out Michaela's heart and what Michaela is going through. That is so important for me, and I can just get lost in just going after my thing. I'm selfish at times, and uh, it's so important to actually keep learning how, how to submit what I want and to uh, think about what Michaela wants. And so for us, in, in our intimacy with God, the communication is so important that we need to just bring open, bring our lives we actually need to come to God in prayer and, and just tell him what's going on. Just bring our hearts and go, God, this is overwhelming me. This is too much. That communication needs to be a constant thing that we're striving for, letting God into our lives. That communication is key. And then we need to submit what we think. 
submit what our desires are, submit how we think life should be, submit, God, this feels overwhelming, but I think you are in control. I declare you have this sorted. I trust in you. I believe you're going to lead me through. This is not going to take me out, but I, I know that you are with me. I cannot be shaken. And so we need to keep continually communicating, letting the intimacy grow in us and submit to him and let him speak. When's the last time you came to prayer and didn't say anything but just sat and said, God, speak to me? What is it in me that pulls me away from you? What is it in me that pulls me away from your plans and your heart for my life? Speak to me. I submit again to you. So guys, I, I wanted this to be a picture of realizing that life is overwhelming. And that doesn't mean that we can't do anything about it. That, that's just that's what we're going to have to handle and deal with. The fact that sometimes life is overwhelming and there is this sense that we've failed and that we sense that we haven't got this right, but we are called to have transformed hearts. And in that, through that, there is this intimacy as we let God transform us. There's this intimacy that we need to strive for, work for and just believe, God, I, I want to grow intimate with who you are calling me to be and let him change me. Let him change me. And so I'm just going to finish by reading from Hebrews. Yeah, Beck, thanks. Thanks, Rebecca. What a lady. What a lass. I'm going to read from this scripture in Hebrews and I shared this scripture in um our Wednesday morning prayer this week. And uh, I was kind of just like, I, I read it beforehand and thought, yeah, that'd be good to just share or kind of keep going. Because when you read Hebrews 12, you read the first part about, um, you know, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Um, and yeah, there's a beautiful thing. But then if you keep reading, it talks about discipline. And like, I always stop because I don't want to read about discipline. I don't want to go there. I just wanted the good stuff. Like, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. They're all the perfecter of our faith. You know, let's run the race he's marked out for us. Yes, let's do that. And then go to discipline? Really? Come on. Why are we going to discipline? And um, it, it talks about this block of discipline and how we are disciplined in these moments as, as children. Our parents discipline us. And so it is with God. He actually wants to teach us. Life can be overwhelming, and it feels even like in those overwhelming times, there's discipline. That God's kind of, oh, you've, you've done something naughty. <laughs> in the midst of those times, we actually need to recognize God is with us. And he wants to transform us in this. In Hebrews 12 and from verse 11, it says, Now discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, and this is where I just kept kind of getting stuck here on Wednesday morning, it says, therefore, lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees and make paths for your feet so that 
make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And I want us to this, this evening just to go, all right, life can be difficult and tough at times, but God calls me in the midst of the overwhelming, in the midst of what feels like a discipline, to lift my drooping hands, to say, no, this is not going to overcome me. This will not overcome my life. I'm going to lift my drooping hands. I'm going to strengthen my weak knees that I can't stand any longer. But God, I'm going to strengthen those weak knees. I'm going to let you come into my life and transform me because there is true healing that wants to take place. And healing means supernatural work. Healing means what that which was broken, that which did not work before, now has been transformed and renewed. Supernatural work of, of the power of God wants to actually do something in us in the midst of the overwhelmingness that takes place in our life. Will we lift our drooping hands? Will we strengthen our weak knees and believe there is healing for our lives? And so why don't you just close your eyes right now and maybe if you're feeling overwhelmed, just lift your hearts, lift your hands to God. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence. We thank you that you're with us, that you're for us. And so, God, I pray right now for a power, for your strength to come upon us afresh tonight, to fill us with fresh faith, transform our hearts, lift our drooping hands, strengthen our weak knees. God, we believe for healing and wholeness, that we will not be overcome by the overwhelming senses, the moments in our life that feels too much. God, we believe for the power of your Spirit to strengthen us afresh, to hold us up. We thank you, Jesus. You're amazing. You're amazing, God.